0: Hello, welcome to our eighth episode of Shattered Gradients. So today I'm here with uh, Krithik Ramesh, who is a um, legend. He got, uh, so he was at ISEF, I know him from ISEF, and he got the Gordon E. Moore Award in 2019, and he's been doing some really interesting work on machine learning and medicine and lots of other stuff. So Krithik, why don't you you give kind of a brief introduction of yourself?
1: Yeah, um, as Brendan mentioned, I'm perfect and I like to do machine learning a lot. Um, This year at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, I competed in biomedical engineering and um, I was lucky enough to win one of the bigger awards at the fair. Um, So a lot of my research involves computer vision and augmented reality. So I like to work at the intersection of two very sort of unknown fields which is medicine where we don't fully understand why everything works and also machine learning where we don't fully understand where everything works so what happens when you mix two fully uncertain things you get a very interesting and powerful field incidentally.
0: that's awesome so um yeah i uh what would you, what would you like to talk about? I, um, I know you've been doing a lot of interesting stuff lately, but I, I know you're also interested in stuff like the philosophy of AI and that sort of thing. So, yeah,
1: um, yeah, I guess like as far as machine learning goes and like what I'm currently working on, um, a lot of my research involves diagnostic systems and how to build predictive diagnoses for, uh, some sort of complex system. So, some of the more common ones that we see is like diabetic retinopathy or um, melanoma detection based off of like mis- uh, computer vision. Um, while those are pretty significant and incredibly accurate, I'm looking at more complicated systems, like um, looking at gene interactions for congenital heart disease and predicting diagnostics of patient like cardiac morphology and fetuses or working with spinal reconstruction surgery and a variety of other medical systems. Realistically, what we see is that um, machine learning serves as a way of understanding genetic mechanisms or biological processes that were previously undescribed. And it's just very interesting to see.
0: So I'm not an expert in medicine, but uh, you're saying like it, it allows us to model the operation of certain things that people you know, didn't previously understand how it worked. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying?
1: Yeah, pretty close. Is that like certain things in biology are just unknown. And it's very difficult to uncover them. But um, machine learning general nature of being able to find trends and patterns that aren't instantaneously visible to the human eye or like human cognition. And it allows for us to understand more complicated biological mechanisms. So it's very interesting to see how you can apply something that's fundamentally ingrained in computer science and math to a natural sciences problem.
0: Yeah, I can, I can, I can relate to that, that general idea because I'm, as I've, I'm sure I've mentioned before on the, the podcast, I, I'm working on a machine learning in astrophysics, specifically dark matter detection. And I found that it's, we're we're looking for for certain attributes that distinguish between different types of particles entering a detector, and found that there are patterns that humans have not yet been able to pick out, but actually machine learning does quite a good job of.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just very interesting to see how, because at its fundamental level, like while we have a general understanding of machine learning, we don't have like as strong of an understanding as we do with say like algorithms that are written that don't involve machine learning so it's interesting <laughs> yeah. to see what all the applications for them are even though i'm a stem person and a lot of other people probably hearing this are interested like quite deeply ingrained in stem i also like to take quite a significant amount of time to explore like non-stem topics realistically i spend a lot of my time looking at things that aren't stem uh just because they interest me equally as much um like, uh, philosophy or just like looking into different kinds of literature is like something I've been very excited about actually.
0: Yeah, sure. So I, 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 um, I agree a lot and I, in, in particular machine learning has, of course, a lot of real world applications, but I've been, been spending a lot of time thinking lately about how machine learning can relate, um, to things like philosophy um, because in my mind, it's it kind of machine learning is a reasonably good model of how the human brain works in a lot of ways. And I, I've been thinking about that in terms of, um, things in philosophy, like intuition versus reason and that sort of thing. I often use machine learning as an analogy for that. And it, it kind of helps me to understand it, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh it's just like it's interesting. One of the things that like always inspires me or it's like so interesting to see is um when they give generative networks like pieces of art and it recreates similarly similarly styled pieces. Like when I look at things like that, it's just so interesting to me cuz it definitely gets me thinking about like what sort of cognitive processes are required for creativity, but somehow something that's like fundamentally ingrained in mathematics can create something of equal caliber.
0: Actually, are you, I, I know you've used GANs before. I have, I've always, could you like explain how style transfer works? Are you familiar with it? Because uh, I think a lot of us have probably seen those where people will take a photograph and put it through a neural net and then it looks like a Van Gogh painting.
1: I actually don't fully understand how those work, but I, like my analogy for GANs typically helps helping people understand how those work in general. Like, the way, like, I've been explained that a GAN works is that, let's just say you make a fake dollar bill, okay? And you go to a cashier, and you turn it in, and she says, obviously, I can't accept this bill. It doesn't, it's not real. And for whatever reason, you ask her, and she's just like, so what about it wasn't real? And the cashier lady says, oh, it's missing X, Y, and Z. So you go back to your house, you make a different do- dollar bill, and you come back. And then the same process happens again. And over and over again, what you'll realize is that while you're getting equally as good as making the dollar bill, you also realize the cashier gets better at identifying fake dollar bills. And like, that's how generative adversarial networks are able to develop like images or like handwriting and stuff is that they're going back and forth with each other trying to figure out how to make a better model.
0: Yeah, so in in this case, you would train the discriminator or the cashier to tell whether something How would that work? Would it yeah, tell, like you, tell you it whether it's a painting art. or yeah like certain stylistic
1: elements should be in incorporated into like the discriminator and then if the given piece of art doesn't have that then I'm assuming that the the transfer is done where it learns how to make said piece of art into slightly different pieces.
0: Yes. Yeah. So I, I got my my question about it is is how because Of course, you you can have image generator networks where the input is just random noise, and it it generates an image, but it doesn't... My question is, how do you get the output to actually look like the input image? Is it it something as simple as a, um, like a least squares cost function on the generator, where it's trying to make it look like the input?
1: I wish I knew. I... I have honestly spent more time looking at the pieces of art <laughs> than the internal mechanics yeah. behind them. I I wish I knew. It's it's just interesting. I I take like the five year, five and a half year old approach to this, where I'm like, look at the pretty colors. Um. Yeah. I.
0: Yeah. It's
1: a really interesting piece of information, but I I don't really know.
0: Yeah, when I was at um, Nvidia GPU Tech Conference, they had. They had like a huge printout, and it looked like an actual canvas painting. And it was just just a big printout of an AI generated painting. And it was pretty awesome, actually.
1: That's insane. Yeah, I just think like machine learning just has like so many different interesting possibilities to it. So I was thinking about um, how we have machine learning algorithms like that use LSTM uh, to be able to read literature and text, and I was wondering if we could like actually make systems that are cognizant enough or able enough to create like philosophical structures, like Kant, or like um, just a variety of different circumstances or scenarios, or like if we could answer them. So, like for example, like I think a lot of people have heard of the like the trolley car scenario. Yeah. Like, um, essentially, you have three people lying on a track, and the train's going to hit them, but then there's this one unsuspecting guy with only one person on the track and you have the ability to change the track to only hit one guy, or you can just let it hit the three people. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing is that like personally, it varies based on person to person, like what kind of circumstances would elicit a, uh, changing the track or not. And then depending on what kind of literature you read, it like fundamentally changes your cognitive framework for, yeah which one, what you, what you do, would you like pull the track or would you not? And I wonder if we could train machine learning with systems that could like read separate, um, pieces of literature from different authors and then like be able to contextualize it enough where if you give it presented a problem like that, it would be able to answer.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I, um, I think this is kind of a wider problem. The idea that, uh, I mean, we've all seen, um, you know, Carpathy's article where he trained, uh, that was, I think back from 2015, where he trained the uh, car RNN to generate Shakespeare and all that. Um, Yeah. Which was really funny. Of course Uh, I'll, I'll link it in the show notes. It's a um, entertaining read and, and certainly has, has a lot of cool stuff in it, but I think it's a wider question. And this comes to when, Um, machine learning is being applied to any kind of art form, whether it's music or paintings or literature, it's like there's a difference between having a comprehension of the style and having a comprehension of the actual meaning behind it. You know, you you can read Shakespeare and generate stuff with lots of the characteristics of old English, but, but it generally doesn't actually mean anything. So... That's that's kind of something something I'm curious about. How you would go about improving current machine learning systems, or doing something totally new, to the point where I can really understand what the human behind it meant.
1: Wait, but like that's the interesting thing, right? So we saw in like one of the old like it was relatively recent, like maybe a year ago, um, a year or two ago, when Google released a little Google Assistant thing that could make phone calls for you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I've seen, I've, that's I've seen that. Absolutely
1: insane. Like, mind-boggling.
0: Yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good.
1: Like, it's interesting because, like, the Turing test has been, like, the gold standard for, like, being able to understand how intelligent a computer or system is, right? Like, if we can effectively communicate with humans on a level that, like, seems natural. And from whatever demo that they showed us, like, obviously the conditions were, like, next to perfect. But just generally speaking, that was, like, in, like, leaps and bounds ahead of anything I could have ever imagined.
0: Yeah, I so I haven't listened to a whole lot of recordings of that. I remember, I've definitely heard a few, but would you kind of just like yeah, <laughs> tell yeah. me briefly what it did?
1: Yeah, so essentially what happened is that they, they did this demo, right? And they're like, um, Google Assistant, make a hair appointment for me tomorrow at 3.30 a.m. So it calls, uh, 3.30 p.m., let's say. Um, so it calls... The hair salon, mm-hmm. and then it has a conversation with the stylist on the other end, like the receptionist. So this lady is like, "Oh, hello, how are you doing?" And uh, the Google assistant responds perfectly, and it's like, "Hi, um, I'm trying to get a hair appointment for three thirty tomorrow." And she's like, "Oh, three thirty is booked. Would four o'clock be okay?" And it answers like, "Yeah, four o'clock would be fine," or something. So it has like this completely natural really? conversation.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. Uh,
1: like a natural conversation with some place and it's like not just the hair salon stylist it's like also being able to order like chinese food for takeout <laughs> like that's awesome. Good at it. and like it's able to understand different accents or colloquialisms that may not be present so it it was like beyond absurd to see something that efficient at communicating and you, very quickly at it too
0: do you happen to know how they trained it
1: no clue. I don't think they're ever going to release that either. <laughs> oh, yeah,
0: yeah. There's probably too much, um, too much money to be made. <laughs>
1: yeah, tell me about it. It just looks so interesting.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I I guess kind of. I remember I, w- I was talking to a guy who was working on, um, like an SAT prep test generator. You you know the ones they have in Khan Academy where they give you f- um, yeah. free SATs to practice on. And he was he was generating questions. And in some cases you can do that in like in the writing section, you can kind of cut and paste pieces from the um passage right. for the questions. So so that's that's cool. And he was he was using um kind of well, it, it was really advanced, but uh, non machine learning grammar modeling. But it kind yeah. of got me thinking I mean, obviously you can generate math questions using computers, but I was right. thinking on the reading section, like the the deep comprehension questions that require actually reading it and understanding it and not just copying bits and pieces. Right. It would be crazy if someone could make a machine learning um, system that could actually do the reading section on the SAT.
1: That's absurd. Yeah. Like I think that like those kind of problems are just so interesting. Like a lot of people see STEM and um like the humanities, I was like two separate fields, but realistically the way that I see it is that they're like in and of each other. And problems like this are like the things that get me interested in like why I appreciate like a liberal arts education equally as much as I appreciate yeah. a STEM education.
0: Yeah, as long as as long as machine learning is going to work with humans instead of replacing them.
1: Exactly. We have to be able to
0: understand both in order to to work with Right. Human, did you see human all, like members?
1: Andrew Yang's like political uh political system?
0: Oh, Andrew Yang. Him? Oh, yeah. I'm super familiar with him. I listened to an interview Yang with him Yang. a few years ago before he was in the media. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah.
1: Wait. So, how did you hear of him before he started running for presidency?
0: Well, he he was running for presidency, but it was it was much earlier in the cycle. It was um Free Economics podcast. Not sure if you've heard of it.
1: Oh yeah, I love Freakonomics. I've read the books too. Yeah, yeah, that's so interesting.
0: Yeah, he had. Dude, an... I, didn't... sorry. Yeah, go for it. No, no, no I was just saying he um, he had an interview and he uh, I liked I liked his reasoning behind it. He uh, uh,
1: yeah,
0: it, it it makes a lot of sense. Now, now I I do think that people have a habit of overestimating how quickly automation is going to come. Like, yeah, it is going to come. It probably won't be that soon, but I'm the political system fundamentally moves slowly. So I'm all in favor of, of like trying to prepare for automation, you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think the thing I liked about him in like most was um, he used to be in like Silicon Valley and like work in the tech industry. So he understands, like, has some sort of, like, whether he worked in it or not, I'm sure he had, like, some level of familiarity with it, where he was able to, like, talk about it in a meaningful way, where he understood that, like, machine learning does have its deficits, but, like, also, like, one of his biggest things was about, like, truck driving jobs, right? And yeah. um, I just think it made, like, such an interesting argument about how so many people don't realize where automation takes place, And that they also don't understand the nuances of it because he, he understands like singularities like very, very far away.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, Actually, to be honest with you, that's one of the most important things that I value in terms of like politics is people who actually understand the nuts and bolts behind the issues that they're regulating. Um, Right.
1: Exactly.
0: Cause yeah. Automation, it has, I think truck driving is, is definitely the, probably the one that's coming the most quickly because self-driving cars are are already yeah they're just around the corner, yeah um
1: and like with their whole like model the semi-truck thing it's like their infrastructure is getting there getting to the point where that could be a reality very soon like in the coming decade
0: yeah i i don't know i i people who say that that jobs of like doctors are going to be automated soon. I'm not so confident about that. Although I guess you would know better than I would being in medicine. No, I think
1: no, no. I I think you're right in that regard is that like a lot of medicine is still incredibly complicated. Like yeah. the thing about medicine is that there are certain things like we know pretty much everything there is to know about driving, right? Like about what? Like we know pretty much everything that there is to know about driving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We understand driving mechanics to the T, but the thing about medicine is that we don't fully understand all the nuances of medicine. There are still things that we don't know how to treat. Uh, there are things that, like medical procedures, where there are complications, and we and every single complication is handled differently. Like there's yeah,
0: I'm v- very familiar with that.
1: Yeah, exactly. And nuances associated with medicine, where like. In specifically, AI is like, medicine is like the perfect example for why AI could add to a certain field, but never truly eliminate it. Like robotic navigation, like robotic surgery is very important. And like the stuff that I've done previously serves as like a primer for what robotic navigation systems could look like. But at the end of the day, the surgeon is still the person that has to do it.
0: Yeah, I, I agree with you there, because I feel like to a certain degree in many fields, as as the potential benefit goes up, the potential harm also goes up. So, I mean, surgery being probably the most extreme case where you have a person's life at stake. And I have not worked on robotic surgery. I have used reinforcement learning for robot arms, and they, they do some quite unexpected things that I would not want a robot with a knife- in my body to do so, right exactly yeah.
1: you know since obviously like like as i mentioned previously like machine learning isn't a perfect science
0: yeah of course like
1: and a lot of people take that for granted and like there are plenty of memes online about like how people think that ai is going to take over the world and then <laughs> yeah. there's one about like how it's my machine learning classifiers identifying a cat as a yeah. dog yeah like those are like the very real growing pains associated with this yeah like it's the way that i see it is that like a lot of people consider machine learning the fourth industrial revolution like it's like changing the world and like taking it by storm but if we stick with that analogy what we see is that a lot of the industrial revolutions had significant like as i was talking about like me being not just being like a stem kid because yeah, like, yeah i like history. oh i love economics like, as well right exactly like the it, all of the industrial revolutions had significant growing pains associated with them. Oh yeah. Whether that was like losing like for the sake of like having coal or like farming, we lost a lot of like um, environmental standards or protections. Like everything had its drawbacks at and, some
0: point or some place. And, and also pe- people draw the comparison a lot um, with automation. They say, Oh, it's like, it's like the industrial revolution and and we got through that. Right. And and i mean that's true but the industrial revolution there were also a lot of i mean i'm not a historian but there there were a lot of riots and a lot of societal problems
1: right it was all that could be lost
0: yeah so right so i i think that the better we can can kind of look back at the history and learn from that and i i think it may well tell something about tells us something about how we should handle this this coming wave of ai and i'm not necessarily one of the people that thinks it's going to turn the world on its head and uh totally replace humans with robots but there will be real changes
1: right exactly like your roomba isn't going to take over your life yeah (laughs) but it's 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 always interesting to see like other people's perspectives on it it's like a lot of people think there are some very pessimistic people like elon musk which is like out of all the people i expected to not be on the AI bandwagon, I did not expect Elon Musk to be on that list, I'll be completely honest.
0: Yeah, I do know that people often misquote him Mis- as saying things that are more yeah. negative than he does, but yeah, he's definitely the not the most not the biggest um proponent of AI.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, like obviously his pessimism isn't like, oh, like all machine learning is bad. He's just saying like the way that the current infrastructure for machine learning is set up is bad. Which is like the fundamental reason why you started open AI, right to understand the intricacies of like what is possible oops, what is possible with uh, um, like what, uh, what is possible with machine learning? Because like one of the things that was so interesting to see was like um, when open AI did this thing about noise and how they added noise into an image, and then the classification was just completely skewed.
0: Oh, yeah, where where you run like gradient descent on the last or sorry, on the input layer, trying to optimize yeah. the last layer to be what you want. And you can like make the image look the same, but have a different class.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's just so interesting to see like how microscopic things like something that like obviously wouldn't affect a human's perception of an image can just be absolutely like steamrolled by a very, very what what would be considered like not a very high, a uh, high degree of uncertainty.
0: Yeah so so what i'm kind of curious about is we can only do that because we have like we have the numbers in the neural network and we can calculate the gradients on the input layer and we can right. know which direction to change things to to make it think it's something else but it kind of brought the question in my head what if and i i know that of course the human brain doesn't operate in terms of gradient descent but <laughs> Is there maybe some kind of analog where you could make the human brain misperceive things in a similar way if you actually had access to all the weights in the neurons and such? I
1: mean, that's why we have hallucinations, right? Like, we
0: see. Is it? I I don't know enough about.
1: I mean, like, so, like, obviously, uh, hallucinations are, like, obviously, like, not necessarily correlated with, like, gradient descent or, like, any sort of manipulation. Yeah, yeah. But realistically, what you see is that human perception is also heavily biased. A lot of like you should constantly be seeing your nose out of your vision, but you don't, and that's because you have selective vision. You should be hearing yeah. all the time, but you don't because you just learn to block hear- out background noise.
0: Hearing what all the time?
1: Like certain, like just background noise and like certain things, but you don't hear. Oh yeah, you, like, learn, like people
0: like tune them out. People typing in the background, that sort of
1: Yeah, thing. exactly. Like they're called sign stimulus, and then like it's called habituation, where like you start hearing so much of the sign stimulus that you don't, like, care about anymore. Because if you think about it, if we were to, like, track and document every sign stimulus that we got, like, any sort of stimulus to our sensory systems, we'd, like, lose our mind. Because there's so much to take in at the same time. But we just get used to it because we start to tune things out. And, like, th- that's the way that I see noise in, like, a machine learning thing is, like, you're, like, overloading this, like, a fundamental understanding of, like, sensory systems. And- yeah. It just results in very weird outcomes. Yeah, no, the way that I see it is that, like, adding noise to an image, like that that situation is, like, the same way that I see conversion disorder. So conversion disorder is, like, um. let's just say you're – it's, like, seizures that are idiopathic, meaning we don't really understand why they happen or, like, what's the origin of them. But mm-hmm. the way – the best way to explain it is that, like, if, you're com- if your body or, like, your signal stimulus runs in ones and zeros in binary, your body out of nowhere just starts talking like ABCs and then you just have seizures as a result of that. Hmm. this is like a very, very superficial understanding of it. But like, that's the general yeah. conversion disorder. And that's the way that I see like, like when, what happens when you put like noise into an image for a generative adversarial classes, like uh, a classifier is that like they're used to processing in like very, very strict set of circumstances. And then something comes and like disproportionately shifts that, uh, shifts the, the understanding that the, the algorithm has formulated.
0: Yeah. I I guess an analogy would be, you know, when you, you train a network on M on the, the handwritten digits yeah. from zero to nine, and then you put a noise image in and then it says with complete certainty, that's a, that's an eight. Um, yeah. Instead of, I mean, you'd expect it to be kind of a, a noisy output layer with a mix of neurons, but no, it's actually dead confident. It's one specific digit. It's so
1: interesting. And like, one of the things that I, I saw that was sort of cool was um some people at OpenAI and I think Google Brain, uh they built this machine, like a visualizer for machine learning where you could see what the activation functions for each image was. Like what?
0: Oh, where you visualize the intermediate tensors.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's so interesting.
0: Like it, yeah, it's it's pretty cool where you see like the the downscaled they look like downscaled input images, but with highlights where the ears of the cat are or whatever.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, if you see like an image that's like complete noise put in through it, it's interesting what like features it picks up on to identify certain characteristics.
0: Yeah, I'm. I've never. I actually haven't seen that, but um, I'll I'll look that up.
1: Yeah, it's just such an interesting it's interesting to see how it works because you know how we constantly ask people, like, how did you get to this answer? Like what was the thought process to get here? And like, that's the question we ask about machine learning all the time. Like what was the thought process to get here?
0: Yeah, but it's just, it's funny because when you ask, I I find from, from my experience personally, when someone asked me, like, why did you make this decision for for whatever, whatever it is? Um, Often, I kind of find myself post hoc justifying it rather than actually going through my reasoning that was going through my head, because I just kind of gave an intuitive answer. Uh, Yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Where we're like, people are kind of like neural networks.
1: And you have to like, look in hindsight to figure out like, what was the rationale behind that decision?
0: Yeah, but in reality, you just kind of do it automatically, like the yeah, forward pass through yeah. your neural net. But with
1: at least with machine learning, it's far more intense in that regard, right? Far more. Like, you don't, it's it's done, like, while we know, like, for us to make a decision, it's just, like, sort of intuitive, right? But for yeah. machine learning, it's never, in, like, like I and I say this, I mean it with air quotes, like, it becomes intuitive. It never becomes intuitive. It's just, like, The process just gets faster.
0: Yeah. Well, sorry. Can you kind of clarify what you mean by that a little?
1: Right. So like, let's just say that you like, as far as time complexity goes, when you keep giving like a data set of like similar image structures or similar images to be classified, the classification time, uh, depending on like what kind of algorithm model that you use, like classification time can go down with refinement. Like, if your data set uh, becomes better or, like, larger or just more efficient algorithms, like, the classification time can be, like, near constant if you use something like um, a support vector machine. But the interesting thing is, like, we sort of do that internally. It's just...
0: Isn't the classification time constant for a neural net?
1: I think it... uh, I guess, like, images aren't a good example. Probably, I haven't read too much about this, but it's, like, more complicated structures, like five dimensional values or stuff like that. It's just like, there's like studies about how like training a very set specific number of images or like certain trends in values ends up being trained faster over a course of time, but that might just be like, Oh,
0: Oh, you mean training I thought you meant inference speed. No. Okay. Okay. No, yeah, no. Yeah, From the yeah.
1: Training perspective, like when it's actually learning, like in- intuition.
0: Actually, so uh, kind of that's interesting. I would love if you if you have any resources on that, um, please do send me a link. But yeah, um, in terms of like on on that topic, how it'll learn more quickly in some topics and um, than in others, that's actually weirdly that ties in really well with the research I'm doing right now. Interesting. Um, so one metric that we're looking at is uh, now so so. this is for exploration reinforcement learning um so trying to synthesize some kind of reward where you can train a, an rl model without actually having a reward Um mm. and people have had a decent amount of success with this but anyway we're looking at a metric which is uh information gain uh per training example so huh. it's imagine like you okay so so are you are you familiar so you can use machine learning models to approximate the entropy of some set of data so right you 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 try to predict it with a neural net um, and you you can calculate the entropy of time series this way by right by how how far off it is when it when it tries to predict and and this sort of thing
1: right wait it's like 40a or something or like some sort of transformational analysis
0: no, no, no! It's just actually um, trying to pr- predict the next value in a sequence, and then you, oh. you can you can approximate the the entropy of the sequence based right, on right, 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 yeah how how much of an error the neural network makes, um, and so anyway, you can you can use similar methods to calculate the information gain. So basically, take some set of data that you think is representative of an environment and then try and run predictions on that data set and figure out kind of how much, how much entropy there is in that data set. Then train on new, a new example that comes from that environment. So we're, we're looking at like, take a bunch of sequences of, of uh, humans playing Atari Breakout and then yep. test on that, then train on a new data point and then test again and see how much the entropy changes and see like if it goes down, then you're gaining information about the environment after seeing that. So it gives us kind of a semi rigorous way to actually say, how much am I learning from seeing a new training example? And instead of kind of having to approximate it, um, we can actually we can actually put like a number of bits to how much did I learn from seeing this?
1: That's so fascinating. Huh.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure if there's a correlation between that and training speed, but if there is, it would be cool. It might be worth looking into.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. That's that's so cool.
0: Sorry for going on the tangent there. I just thought that was, no, it was cool how that was related.
1: I love that. Holy. I'm just like... <laughs> I just like... It's so interesting to see what... How people apply machine learning in their own ways. Like, I don't think I would ever think about stuff like that. Like, a prior... Like, the only sort of things where I see that are kind of interesting that like I never would have thought of is like how they develop simultaneous localization and mapping. It's like what it's commonly used in robotics and it's super interesting. And it's like how they use a priori knowledge and then it just develops an entire environment around itself. Like all these different applications that people see is just so interesting because like I, I'm hard pressed to find any category of science that doesn't realistically need machine learning or couldn't benefit from machine learning.
0: Yeah, it's it's cool. It's it's unique because it's just it's just learning the concept of learning expressed in math. Right. So it's, it's sort of by, by definition, you can you can apply it to anything.
1: I yeah, I guess. You, wait, that's actually really true. Huh.
0: One thing that's kind of cool to think about is you. There's a lot of value in in terms of what we're talking about with with like taking advantage of prior knowledge, um, and then trying to learn more from data. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, machine learning, yeah that that application of prior knowledge is is really valuable for machine learning because suppose you have I don't know. Uh well, kind of in themselves neural networks incorporate a certain amount of prior knowledge. Like images by by making a convolutional layer, you are incorporating prior knowledge that an image is structured like an image and that there's some repetition of features over space and that it, instead of just a random string of bits, it, it's like a rectangular thing. Right. Um so it's cool because machine learning lets you take some kind of prior knowledge and then implement it into a network without telling it exactly how to use it. And then it can figure it out as long as it's differentiable. Right. Like if if you wanted to, you could, you could have a, uh, a calculator, you could take a calculator and put that into a neural network and let it have input neurons that go into the calculator and outputs that come out and it could use a calculator.
1: That's true. Yeah. There's like, I think the, I think the way that you described it is very well, like that. It's just a mathematical model for learning. And that the, the way that it's just structured is based off of the problem, but you just learn in different ways. Yeah. So fascinating. Like, I think one of the most interesting things that I've recently seen is how they use Microsoft Azure for um, uh, Microsoft Flight Simulator 2020, like the new one that's coming out. So I'm like a huge aviation nerd, and I love nerding oh. out about aviation. So the new
0: Flight Simulator looks so cool.
1: <laughs> it looks incredible. Like the 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 resolution is on par with like almost real world. Yeah. <laughs> And the thing is, you know how you were talking about like how it looks at information then tries to do it do it itself mm-hmm. um, like for whatever reinforcement learning stuff that you were doing? Yeah. Like one of the like, it sort of reminded me of like how they do trees in like the height and the way that the trees look in Fight Simulator, is that they look at Bing Maps images and then like create the trees based off of just data from like what trees look like in that region. Oh, that's cool.
0: Yeah. Oh, like based on actual data from the region. Yeah. So they
1: take like data and then try to interpolate them into like bitmaps and then use the images of like actual trees to generate like lifelike trees for that given region.
0: That's really cool. That's actually awesome. Huh. Yeah. Yeah though I would that would have never occurred to me, but I I guess it makes sense.
1: It's like all these different like weird like also like how the water looks in a given region, like how reflective is it or um looking at how the light reflects off of a given surface. It's just like one of the things that a lot of people don't appreciate or like I've I've come to appreciate a lot is like the math behind graphics.
0: Yeah, for sure i mean ray tracing and all that
1: ray tracing is incredible like it absolutely changes the game for like what was possible with um with graphics cards like the interesting thing is like how back in the day when we used to use like what pascal right that was the older version before ray tracing
0: uh yeah Well, there was Pascal and then Volta, but I think that was just for server GPUs.
1: Right. So, like, Pascal was, like, you took a two-dimensional object and then projected it, right, into a three-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. And then ray tracing came about, and it's just, like, straight-up rendered the thing in 3D. So, like, all the animations and, like, shadows and everything look so much cooler.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, ray tracing existed before that, right?
1: It did, but, like, bringing it to market, like, bringing it so that it was commercially viable for, like, the regular person to use.
0: Yeah. So it was actually hardware accelerated.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like it's so beautiful because like, like when I look at things like Microsoft flight simulator 2020 or like even any like modern flight simulator right now, being able to use GPUs to that degree where things like that is possible. is just absolutely insane to me. Yeah.
0: In in general, hardware accelerating that kind of thing is, is really valuable because it means that you can, well, yeah, I know. I know a lot of the older flight simulators are more or less CPU bound, but yes. <laughs> it's uh yeah, having that hardware accelerates is really valuable. Well, it's kind of like how machine learning became a lot more practical for the average person with their desktop uh after Nvidia started doing like proper machine learning acceleration in their consumer GPUs right. because most people aren't, aren't going to go and buy a Yeah aren't going to go buy a Tesla GPU or whatever.
1: Yeah. It's just like we've come leaps and bounds for quite a few reasons. I think the hardware was equally as much to give credit to as it was like TensorFlow, Keras, and PyTorch. Yeah, no doubt. I I also think it's interesting, like, how hard machine learning must have been before TensorFlow.
0: You know, i I've been... How long have you been doing machine learning?
1: I think realistically, I started around freshman year of high school or like freshman and sophomore years, like 20.
0: Yeah. Okay. S- same then. Yeah. So you, you kind of remember the days when people used cafe?
1: Yo, oh, I remember cafe. Oh, it was awful. <laughs> yeah. Cafe was like, I remember one of the first things I built in cafe was like using my like webcam camera to do lifetime object detection, and I use like like one of the pre-built weights for an RCNN. And like yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the most difficult experiences in machine learning I've ever had.
0: What? Yeah, I. Kn- yeah. Sorry. Sorry. What were you saying?
1: Oh, I was just talking about like how difficult things were in the beginning. Like even when I had oh oh to- yeah, yeah all TensorFlow for the first time,
0: I was so long. Oh my! Oh my God! When I was just installing the stuff. I I swear to God, I spent a week just figuring out how to install stuff before I started. TensorFlow. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, now it's great now. Now Maybe it's it's just, I understand it now. But now I feel like you can just do Conda install TensorFlow GPU and it works.
1: Yeah. It's just like beautifully done. But I remember we had to, you had to do all these library crap. It was like, there was so much to do and so much to learn from machine. learning. Like, TensorFlow.
0: and, uh, reinstalling the GPU drivers 16 times in order to get it, not render your desktop in uh, yeah. potato quality.
1: Oh, and doing it on Mac was even worse. Let me tell see, I'm like all for Mac development. <laughs> I'm a huge Mac proponent. Yeah. A lot of people, like, uh, give me crap for that. But personally, I think, um, I love Mac development environment. But, like, back in the day when you hadn't saw TensorFlow on Mac, it was awful.
0: Do they even make Macs with NVIDIA cards now?
1: I don't think so. I think everything that they do eGPU-wise is through Radeon. Yeah. Unless, and my, I, unless you get the drivers from NVIDIA to use, like, if you get an eGPU... Like if you buy like one of those Razer Chroma stuff, uh, like Razer, whatever the eGPU thing name is, and buy an RTX card and then connect it, but they don't natively sell NVIDIA. Yeah, yeah.
0: Unless you have like a Mac Pro where you can just install a a 2080 or whatever. Right. Side note, um, it's a shame that they don't support AMD cards in the main GPU framework. Because I remember there's like, one of the first issues on TensorFlow is from like 2015 was someone asked, if they can use OpenCL and like Radeon, but it's still just sitting there open and unresolved.
1: Yeah, it's... Mac makes certain things, like it's ironic because Mac makes things for Mac users very, very straightforward and easy to use. But then you try to go use some service that's not made by Apple and then the service becomes the hardest thing on planet Earth.
0: Yeah, I I used to... I used to do some iOS development, so I, I oh, had, some, Xcode. had some some yeah Xcode crashing Weird. twice a, twice every hour. Oof,
1: dude, Xcode is one of the most heav- like the heaviest development environment I have ever seen, apart from Visual Studios.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's, I also it's a th- wonder, like um. Also, they have no Vim bindings, and that upsets yeah. me to no end yeah that's like it's awful <laughs> but anyway it uh yeah i just do you, do you do a lot of ios development and that sort of thing
1: i so i run my school's like app that like governs creek so like all the homecoming mm-hmm. royalty and like uh news events any sort of upcoming exams they need to register for everything goes to that app so like i we also had a course at creek called advanced ios application development honors so like that was also a class
0: oh cool oh my god you're so lucky at my school we only got a computer science class this year
1: oh really so you're way ahead of the curve for your circumstances
0: oh i I mean like i've been programming for for quite some years um but yeah in like the city where i'm from we it's like kind of in the middle of nowhere. So we don't, there's some stuff that it would be nice if we had, but you know, <laughs> yeah. I've done fine. The people here are really great and supportive. So I, 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 I'm i good. Honestly,
1: that's all that matters. Yeah. You have people that support you and you can get by with any circumstances. Yeah. Yeah, dude. It's just like, it's like it so interesting to me. It's just like, Core ML is the most black box machine learning thing I've ever seen.
0: It's pretty weird. I've never used it, but...
1: I have. And it's like, realistically speaking, it's not machine learning. Like, not machine learning that we're used to. It's just like drag-and-drop machine learning.
0: Is it, is it like an AutoML thing?
1: Pretty much. It's just like you... If you're building a classifier, you make three folders. Or, like, folders that just say, like, Elephant, like, Kazoo, and, like, MacBook. And then you train <laughs> those three, you just drag and drop that folder in and then it just trains itself. Like no machine learning required. You don't know anything. Really? It. And it says 100% accuracy. And like that's the yeah. thing that's concerning because like you know just as well as I do, anything that says 100% yeah. accuracy in Core ML or like in any sort of machine learning is just a bad thing.
0: That sounds kind of sketchy. Does it? Does it generalize? I think so.
1: Like you can't see the
0: internals. So you don't know what's going on. Can you add a validation set?
1: You literally, at least, like okay. So I haven't. I mean, you have to be add.
0: You have to be able to add a validation set. No, it doesn't ask for one. Really? It just
1: takes in like a set of images. So the issue, well, like validation set is like you can just like dump a couple of images and then it'll tell you what like with what confidence threshold they decided that this was X. Like a kazoo, oh yeah, of a MacBook. But like, there's no like internal backend performance that we can see. Like to be fair, I didn't use the beta version, so I got like a very very limited version of the internals. But oh. I used this back in June, July of this year. So there's probably updates that have come out where it's probably more transparent about how the internal mechanics work. But at that point in time, Core ML was like a black box that just happened to do machine learning.
0: Yeah. So I, I don't know, I'm kind of ambivalent on that because personally I, like I probably wouldn't use it because I do machine learning, but I think it's good that they're making something more accessible for people who are, who are new to machine learning. That's because true. like imagine if I'm just trying to make an iOS app and I think machine learning would be useful. Like I'll tell you, I, I was working, I was working on an iOS app. Oh, I still hope to finish it someday and get it on the App Store. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, it, it's like a, a neural network playground where you can play with the architecture and train it and and see the gradients and stuff as it trains in Uh-oh. colors visually oh. um i i i think it's a, i think there's some merit to the idea i'd love to finish it up but anyway That's so cool. i had to write my own cuz core ml i don't even know if core ml was out when i was working on it i don't think it was but in any <laughs> case core ml is just inference right so yeah. i wanted to do on device training so i wrote my own neural network using their linear algebra api And it was a time.
1: (laughs) Dude, it's just like it would have it's the thing is, like, is it even coding at that point? Because it's only two lines of code. It's not.
0: But if it lets people use machine learning, you know.
1: Right. I think uh, to be that's that's a good point. Like if it gives people the ability to even get in like acclimated to machine learning, then it's a good thing. Because we got inundated with machine learning, the rest of them are getting acclimated to very, very different circumstances.
0: Yeah, it's, I think, I think it's, I think it's a good thing because if you look at when we were starting machine learning, the landscape was a lot more hostile than it is now.
1: That's true. There was also less resources and just like less knowledge on the subject. Yeah. We were all at the same time.
0: I think it's great that it's becoming a um lower barrier to entry.
1: For sure. I I like I think it's like gonna be one of those things that everyone starts doing at some point where like you know how everyone was all like, oh, coding is like the new thing that like everyone will start doing? And then I think sort of like leapfrogging off of that, I think machine learning is gonna be the thing that like everyone is doing.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's already a lot bigger than it was when I started, certainly.
1: Right, for sure. But
0: it's getting bigger.
1: The community definitely got larger. And it's also become, like, the thing about machine learning is that it's, the umbrella is so large that, like, scikit-learn is technically machine learning. Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, fitting a line is machine learning.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, fitting, like, for PCA, like, what? Like, SVC? And then fit the data, like train the data, then fit the data. Like that's realistically off form of machine learning.
0: And yeah.
1: Like while that's also machine learning, we also know what the other end of the spectrum looks like where it's like far more complicated. So it's, it's yeah, fascinating to see.
0: Well, it, it's cool. And neural networks are not always going to be useful for everything. I mean, right that's now, true. that's very, true. It, right now it's a meme. But it won't always be a meme, so people will kind of find like what it what it should actually be used for, and then what people are currently using it for, but really shouldn't be.
1: Right. There are plenty of like classification problems that don't require a neural network. Like an SBM would probably work better, or KNN. Like, there's no general need for a neural network for a lot of cases. Yeah. Like, like I I, of that like Bill Gates using that big tennis ball, a a table tennis paddle
0: yeah <laughs> yeah I'm definitely guilty of having used um, like big machine learning models where a regression or something would be uh, honestly
1: i've I found the same loophole a lot before where like i've I've learned later on that certain machine learning models were definitely better for a given set of circumstances. like using faster RCNN when I should have actually like masked RCNN when I realistically should have used like um, a mm-hmm. UNet. Like there are plenty of cases where I learned through trial and error that like those mistakes are made. But I think much like machine learning, learning to make mistakes, like machine learning is just like making a bunch of mistakes and then the algorithm just learns from them. Like realistically, that's what we've done too, right? We've just made a bunch of mistakes over the time of our machine learning like journey. And then we've just gotten better at it.
0: We are collectively a machine learning model that is training on the universe to create machine learning models.
1: There we go inception anyone
0: <laughs> yeah it's it, it, it's pretty cool I'm I'm optimistic it, it's probably not going to be as much of a thing forever as it currently is but I mean I love it I, I could totally work on machine learning
1: yeah but there for are the rest of my career that don't require machine learning that people try to use machine learning to have you seen that where it's like just a hype train
0: yeah like people using right. tra- training a neural network to add two numbers
1: right there are certain things that could just be written up in a straight up algorithm that don't like someone built like a machine learning algorithm to solve a Rubik's cube. And like in theory, while that works, it's also just purely formulaic.
0: Yeah. I think that that's a solved problem, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it is a solved problem. Like there's no point in develop, like it's an interesting field of study, but like realistically speaking, a computer algorithm was better off and faster than having a machine learning algorithm to solve a Rubik's cube. Like that yeah. is fine line, right? Like because it's become like the super convenient tool to use that people don't know when to use it correctly.
0: Yeah, I think that'll sort itself out over time, but but that's that's absolutely that's true. true. It's fundamentally unreliable, that's the thing about it, right? That's the issue and like
1: there's no way like there's no way to circumvent that issue where it would Uh, and like comes back to the idea of like how it won't replace certain jobs for that reason, because it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: just coming back to like why machine learning will not replace doctors. And it's because, well, I mean, humans are, are neural networks too. And we we make mistakes.
1: Just at a much lower rate. Sorry. We are prone to fallibility just as much as like a machine learning algorithm is, but it's just at a much lower rate
0: yeah but but it is a valid question i mean it's a well the it's thing it's is a, it's it's a it's a d- distinction problem. of degree and not of kind. I mean, it's possible machine right. learning models will become better eventually. that's true,
1: but there's also this factor of like think about it this way, right We have a set of social circumstances associated with being a doctor. Mm-hmm. You have an interaction with this more than one person.
0: Yeah, and, and also uh, actually coming back to um, we were talking about understanding literature. Right. Well, there's a lot of context that people gain from living in the world that helps you write books or be a doctor. Right. And that's something that's hard to train in, you know?
1: Right. It's hard to contextualize data for like a machine learning algorithm.
0: Kind of like IBM Watson having to gain all its context about the world off Google images and such, or no, not Google images, but Google.
1: Right. Exactly. Like it's just, it's so nuanced and interesting that like, that's why I think it's becoming one of those larger fields for an undergraduate studies. Right. Is that Mm -hmm. you are applying under the circumstance of trying to be at the forefront of a field that we don't fully understand. Like, I remember there were like textbooks back and like way way back when before that they thought that we knew everything that there was to know about physics and then we came up with special relativity and we were like oh wait never mind
0: yeah yeah absolutely there's gonna be revolutions in machine learning like that too
1: where honestly we've like reached somewhat of an echelon like a like a top but we there's so much to uncover still
0: not gonna lie that's what I find the most exciting about the field it's like you can have been doing machine learning for five years and actually like come up with something new that nobody's done before. And it's awesome because it's like such an unexplored field and there's so much unclaimed territory and new things to do. So that's, that's a, a big part of why I find it so exciting, you know?
1: Right. Exactly. I'm just like so interested to see like what comes next.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: Yeah, I'm also waiting until, like, machine learning gets actively used in, like, non-STEM fields.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think it's awesome. Um, It's going to go a long way past RNNs. I'm optimistic that eventually machine learning will be able to do stuff like solve the SAT thing I was talking about.
1: Right, exactly. I'm super excited for, like, what's in store for the future, though.
0: Yeah, me too. It's a pretty awesome field
1: yeah for sure
0: anyway I should uh this has been an awesome conversation I kind of have to go within the next like 10 minutes yeah. so
1: say, yeah
0: if you want to wrap up um that's yeah. oh, I'm cool with that
1: yeah I'm down too
0: okay well um this has been really cool it's been great talking with you actually i yeah, uh
1: it was really fun to talk to you too
0: I, I learned a lot from this
1: yeah, for sure. It was very interesting.
0: All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Karthik.
1: Of course. Pleasure to pleasure being here. Bye-bye.